0: Pepperidge Farm, Milano.
1: The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news 5G is coming. In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future. This Time Tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy,
2: And I'm Dablina Chakraborty.
1: And we're picking off where we left off on illustrator and naturalist John James Audubon. And in the last episode, we covered Audubon's illegitimate birth to a French ship's captain and his mistress in what is now Haiti, right before the Haitian Revolution. And after making it through the French Revolution as well, John James was finally moved by his father to Pennsylvania in order to avoid conscription in Napoleon's Army.
2: And it's at that point that Audubon really became kind of an early American Renaissance man, someone who was equally at home dancing, fencing, and dressing in fine clothes, lying in brush for hours watching and sketching birds, or studying up on ornithology in the natural world. But it wasn't until 1819, after he'd lost his business in the panic, that Audubon began focusing in earnest on a monumental project, and that was illustrating all of the birds in. In all of America. We'll include portions of an interview, as we mentioned before, with Michael Inman in this episode. He's the curator of the Rare Books Division at the New York Public Library, who, in addition to being a big Audubon buff himself, shared lots of interesting information with us about the book.
1: So, by 1824, where we left off, after years of sketching birds and traveling around the country looking for new species, John James Audubon was finally ready to find a publisher. And so his wife and two sons had set up their home base near New Orleans where the boys could be educated and Lucy could teach deportment and piano to the children of wealthy planters there. But Audubon decided that Philadelphia, which was still at that time the intellectual and cultural capital of the United States, would be the best place for him to drum up some interest in this project of his.
2: And it's important to remember that as beautiful as Audubon's drawings still are today, they must have seemed completely novel and breathtaking at the time, maybe even shocking to some people. When Audubon presented his portfolio to Charles Lucien Bonaparte, who was a member of the Academy of Natural Sciences and Napoleon's nephew, Bonaparte was just blown away by them. And he started parading Audubon around town to meet artists and scientists. And Audubon had this kind of rugged, brash way about him. He'd really cultivated that frontiersman image that we talked about in the first part of this podcast. So he probably surprised a lot of people that he met. But his big mistake was starting to criticize American ornithology and specifically the late Alexander Wilson and his works, who uh, Michael Inman mentioned Wilson a little bit in the last podcast.
1: Yeah, and according to William Souter in American History, Wilson's earlier incomplete attempt to illustrate the birds of America, you know, this was something he had tried before Audubon was trying, his attempt at doing that was something that the folks in Philadelphia were really very proud of and they considered Wilson to be the father of American ornithology and they considered his book as one of America's first great scientific works. Plus, just really nice book. So here comes Backwoods Audubon out of nowhere criticizing Wilson, talking about mistakes in Wilson's drawings, and even accusing him of kind of a type of bird hunting plagiarism. <laughs> he said that when they met back in Kentucky, he helped Wilson bag a type of warbler that he was searching for and didn't get any credit for that. So instead of finding a publisher in Philadelphia with all of this talk, Audubon found himself shut out instead, shut out of society. Michael Inman actually did described it to us as him being, quote, roundly snubbed. But it became clear to him that Europe was just going to be the better place to go. There would be fewer Wilson fans there. So he was less likely to offend people. There would be more people with deep book buying pockets. And most importantly, there wouldn't be real life North American birds to just look out in your backyard. So you might be more inclined to this very expensive work he was
2: planning. So Audubon set off for Liverpool in 1826 with letters of introduction and his portfolio in tow. And according to Richard Rhodes in Smithsonian Magazine, one of these letters of introduction was to Lucy's sister, Anne, who'd married an Englishman. He was so rugged-looking, though, he knocked at the door and he was actually asked not to call again. So, so <laughs> must Burn. have seemed like a pretty
1: unpromising start if your own sister-in-law turns you away.
2: But that actually wasn't the case. Even though his in-laws didn't receive him with open arms, Audubon's non-in-law connections proved to be a lot more promising. Those same qualities that made him unpopular in Philadelphia made him a huge hit in Great Britain. And Michael told us a little bit more about Audubon's reception abroad.
3: Almost immediately he uh, became sort of the toast of English society that season. He was sort of celebrated as this uh, rugged American woodsman, and he did a great deal to try to perpetuate that sort of romantic image. His hair was long and flowing. He sort of looked something probably like Daniel Boone to them, and in fact, the the English at that time were very enamored of that romantic ideal of Daniel Boone or of, um, you know, these sorts of uh, images that would come out of the novel of James Fenimore Cooper, for example, that sort of frontiersman image. And so he played upon that and traded upon it, and he set upon or set about showing his images, his drawings and sketches to uh, the leading minds of England at that time and was uh, embraced. Um, he, they were, again, they were shocked because it was unlike anything they had seen, uh, but it wasn't, he didn't encounter that sort of snobbishness, I think, that he had encountered in in Philadelphia and throughout the United States, and that probably had something to do with The United States then being a still fairly new country and perhaps a little bit insecure about its place in the world. And and in England, they were, of course, far more, they've been around a very long time. And so they were uh, perhaps a little bit more receptive um, to new ideas or ways of depicting uh, the world.
4: Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news.
0: Yeah, I am wildly excited. And uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs)
4: Yeah, you sounded so calm and it's not a calm situation at all.
1: So with that Daniel Boone, last of the Mohicans kind of persona to recommend him, Audubon started renting out halls for art shows, started spicing up his lectures by providing entertainment himself. He'd talk about uh, what he had seen in, in his travels to to draw all these birds. He'd lecture in his buckskin costume with his hair greased back with bear fat. And just talk about frontier life. He would even imitate birds. He would imitate war calls. He must have been quite a one-man show for, for these audiences.
2: Yeah, I guess these audiences had sort of romanticized this version of America that he was representing to them. But in Edinburgh, he also connected with engraver William Lazars, who, despite having several other large projects underway, agreed to take on this really massive task of printing Birds of America. And this would include, it would be an ongoing process as they planned it, with Audubon painting and adding new birds and Lazars engraving them. And Michael told us how Lazars would have gone about the first few drawings and how the book was planned to be released bit by bit. Here's what he had to say.
3: The basic process of, of completing the, the engravings uh, was that the, someone in the printing shop would trace using uh, tracing paper, essentially, would trace the watercolor, um, getting the general outlines, and then that, that tracing paper would then be um, transferred to the copper plate, and that would be done uh, by basically taking the, the transfer paper, which had the lead image on it, and it would be rubbed essentially onto the plate. The plate itself would have a, uh, a wax ground across it, uh, which would pick up enough of the, the traced image that then someone could then take a burin, which is essentially like a, a needle, and then trace those lines on the copper plate, uh, scooping out that wax ground only where the lines appear. The plate is then put into an acid bath, and depending on how long the plate is left in the acid bath, uh, that will affect how how deeply the acid eats into the plate, and the deeper the, the, the acid eats into the plate, the darker the line or the broader the line. So it allows you to achieve uh, a darker image and also vary the width of the line. And it's something that a skilled uh, engraver or someone who's used to working with the medium of etching, can do in a very controlled manner. And that was something that Lazar's or the people in his printing shop could do. So Audubon's plan for printing Birds of America was uh, fairly straightforward in the sense that it was done through subscription, which was not uncommon at that time. That was something that was common in the book trade, especially uh, for larger works that promised to be published over a period of years. Uh, And Audubon projected at the outset that it would take him about 14 years to finally finish printing Birds of America. And his plan was that he would publish the work by subscription serially, that there would be five numbers or, or sort of packets of images that would be issued per year with five individual plates per number, there would be one large full-size image typically within those that collection of five plates, one medium-size image, and then the, the last three plates uh, would be uh, smaller birds depicted. So you have one very large stunning image typically and then several smaller uh, images uh, within each packet. Uh, the price he estimated for each uh, number was about 140 pounds, which would come out to about, in today's money, about 11,000 pounds uh, for the complete printing run, that was the projection, or about $50,000 in 1827 money. Um, That would be roughly, I believe, about $900,000 in today's money. So it promised to be a very large undertaking, both from a financial standpoint and also from a, a printing standpoint as well.
2: So
1: Lazar's released about 10 engravings before word got back to Audubon that Lazar's colorists had gone on strike. So these were the people who would hand color every single print. And this, of course, threatened to draw out what was already going to be a lengthy printing process. Plus, Audubon hadn't been 100% satisfied with what he had seen, the work he had seen from Lazar's. And he was worried, too, that Lazar's was working on so many projects and wouldn't be able to dedicate himself fully to this. This one massive project. So Michael told us a little bit about what happened after Audubon got this news. Here's what he had to say.
3: Audubon saw very quickly that he needed to find another publisher for Birds of America. And he just almost through happenstance, he had a, a letter of introduction to a man uh, in London, one of the leading printers and publishers in London, a man named Robert Havell. And he went to see Havel and inquired about the possibility of Havel taking the project over. Havel was, again, very much in favor of doing it because it was such a monumental undertaking, however, Uh, He said, you know, I'm so far advanced in age, you know, this is promising to take 14 or so years to do, he said, what I'll agree to do is this, I'll take over the project, I'll oversee the engravers, I I can't do it myself, but I'll find someone who can engrave the images up to your standards and I'll oversee them and we can continue with the publishing of Birds of America here in London. So Havel set about finding an an engraver um, for Birds of America and he asked several colleagues. And one of the colleagues said, oh yes, I know a young man who can do a a great job and brought a sample of this person's work. And Havel said, oh, this is fantastic quality work. You know, this is exactly what I'm looking for. He said, who is this person? He said, well, if you like the work, I think you'll like the person. It's your son, Robert Havel, Jr. Um, Robert Havel, Jr. and his father had been somewhat estranged for a period of years and hadn't really been in contact too much. Uh, But They were able to reconcile very quickly with the prospect of taking on this monumental project. Uh, Robert Havel Jr. came back into the fold, began working in his father's shop, and uh, Audubon asked Lazars to send the first 10 copper plates to Robert Havel, which they retouched and reworked and brought up to the current standard. And they began moving forward from that. Point on.
2: So, this partnership with Havel and his son proved especially lucky for Audubon since Havel was a master of something called Aquatint, an engraving technique that allowed for a tone gradation. And from a practical side, what this meant was that the colorists hand coloring all of those prints didn't have to achieve shading with their paint. They could do a flat wash, but it also meant a beautiful end product. Michael, who of course works with the book at the New York Public Library, said that Aquatint really really adds depth and difference between the first 10 plates and the later ones. Um, And that difference is really clear when you look at them side by side.
1: Okay, so at this point, the Havels were publishing the completed drawings, and Audubon was heading back to America every now and then to keep on locating and keep on painting new birds to add to the collection. But he was also writing his ornithological biography, which was kind of an index to go with the printed book so an index of all the species mentioned complete with tall tales and notes on how the birds tasted we mentioned that in the last episode and wilderness stories too some of which he just completely made up. But Audubon's work in Europe and American cities wasn't over either because he still had to constantly raise subscriptions and maintain the orders of his clients. So there was a business side as well as the artistic side to it. Subscription, though, did offer some advantages for him, even though it required this constant maintenance.
2: It did. It provided a steady income stream for a project that ended up costing about $900,000 in modern currency. And it also allowed allowed... allowed Audubon to get around laws requiring donations of complete sets to British libraries. Which would have been a huge loss. Right. But with subscriptions costing about $1,050 at the time for a complete set, Only the very rich could afford these books. Michael told us some of the subscribers included George IV of England, Charles X of France, whose subscription actually got interrupted when he was deposed. Uh, The British Museum was another subscriber, the Library of Congress, Daniel Webster, and John Jacob Astor. According to Audubon's notes, there were eventually 161 subscribers, though interestingly, some didn't make it through the entire run, as Michael explains to us here
3: there were there was a, a financial panic, a depression in eighteen thirty six for example, and uh, that most likely put a dent in the subscription uh, when you're forced with you know deciding if you want to pay for your 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 land or your home or a book about birds. Probably the book about birds is the first thing to go
1: <laughs> so that was kind of a, a funny anecdote yeah. to this whole uh, subscription story, but you can imagine that with Audubon keeping subscribers interested and overseeing the printing and sketching birds still, too. He didn't really have that much time to spend at home with his family in New Orleans. And especially during the first few years, when he was really still getting the project off the ground, and still really the toast of the town, too, doing those lectures in his buckskins. And it's during this time that he and his wife had a misunderstanding, a miscommunication. And he'd been abroad for about two years, and he was getting lonely. He wrote to Lucy and asked her to join him in Europe. But somehow or another, their letters got crossed in the mail, and he came away with the impression that she would only leave Louisiana when he was finally rich. Well, she thought he just wasn't interested in her anymore. He was famous now the toast of the town, like we said, and just didn't want his wife hanging around. So finally, according to Rhodes, Lucy basically wrote, come home, we need to talk, we need to figure this out. And so Audubon started this epic trip home.
2: Yeah, he arrived in Bayou Sarah in the middle of the night in November 1829, and he later wrote about wandering through St. Francisville looking for a horse to ride the 15 miles to Lucy's school, but he only found the houses emptied by yellow fever. Finally, he got a horse, and he rode through the night and got to Lucy's school at 6 a.m., but he found her already teaching piano. Here's how he described the scene. I pronounced her name gently. She saw me, and the next moment I held her in my arms. Her emotion was so great I feared I had acted rashly, but tears relieved our hearts. Once more we were together.
1: So this is why we think Audubon's story needs to be a movie, this grand romantic scene. And uh, Lucy and Audubon basically didn't separate after that. And as their sons grew up, they joined the family business of producing Birds of America, something that went on for a very long time, not quite as long as Audubon expected, but finally completed publication in 1839 after 12 years. So At this point, Audubon was 53 years old. Birds of America had been his lifelong project. And Michael Inman told us a little bit about what somebody like this was going to do next. And here's what he had to say.
3: Audubon uh, did not really make any money at all on the initial publication of birds, on the double elephant folio volume um, and that term, referring simply to the size of the paper that was used, which was the largest commercially available sized paper that was available at that time, he made virtually no money on that, and so he immediately, in 1839, as publication wound to to a close, he began looking for uh, ways to recoup some of his investment and almost immediately began working on a smaller version of Birds of America, uh, what was known as the Royal Octavo version, which is a, a much smaller format book format, uh, and he began printing, or having that published, within a matter of a few years, they began publishing this Royal Octavo format. And because, number one, it was smaller, and also they used a different printing process. Uh, instead of using etching and engraving and aquatint, they used lithography, which was much easier to uh, a format uh, a medium that's much easier easier to work with. They were able to publish it much more cheaply. And he made uh, a good deal of money off of the Royal Octavo version. In fact, enough that he was able to secure his financial uh, future for pretty much the remainder of his life. Uh, it made um, a, a very you know, large chunk of money for him. There's a city far away.
0: A fiction podcast.
2: The richest, most powerful place on Earth.
1: On an epic scale. Tumon Bay. Jumon Bay.
2: Jumon Bay. Jumon Bay.
3: A vast empire, threatened by rebellion. Power is everything. Power gives everything.
0: We have to get away from this place, or we will die too.
1: The truth makes us strong. Tuman Bay is our destiny. History and fantasy collide.
2: They are among
0: us. Who? First a few, and now many.
1: From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker.
3: The only thing I ask of you is total and complete loyalty. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be
2: sharp and die for Tumen Bay!
3: Listen
0: to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Tumen Bay. So the family ended up moving to this nice house in New York and the unstoppable Audubon, or seemingly unstoppable, also started planning a work on the mammals of America. (laughs) So he spent three years on that work, but he was aging rapidly. His eyesight started to fail and he became senile and he finally died in 1851. His last lucid words were to invite his visiting brother-in-law to go hunting with him. Lucy lived for many more years after that, eventually running out of money, though. First she sold off the watercolors and then the copper plates to try to support herself. And according to Souter's article, Audubon had had these sent home after printing was completed, but the ship sank in the New York Harbor. And that destroyed many of the plates, and the others were damaged in an 1845 warehouse fire. The remaining plates Lucy sold were being melted down for scrap metal when the plant manager's son realized what they were and save the ones that he could. He basically just salvaged whatever was left. In 2002, the Audubon State Park Museum in Kentucky actually struck prints from one of them. So they still work. They still work. And today, too, I mean, we got to talk about the
1: remaining copies of the book, too. Those $1,050 double elephant copies of Birds of America go for about $8 million, meaning that most of the 120 known complete sets are held by museums and universities and libraries, and I guess we can assume a small number of very wealthy people. But it really makes sense from a physical standpoint, as well as a financial one, uh, that these books are held in institutions considered Considering that they are very large books, ones that would be quite difficult to display in a private home, even a well-appointed private home, I would say they measure thirty-nine and a half inches by twenty-nine and a half inches. And Michael told us a little bit about what a book of that size is like and how you have to deal with it. And here's what he had to say:
3: and each volume weighs over sixty pounds. And I know this uh, from experience that it's it's very uh, it's not a good idea to try to lift it by yourself. I did try that one time and spent uh, the next week uh, flat on my back in bed with a herniated disc. It's it's such a large, bulky work and, and weighing over 60 pounds that it's something that it's, it has to be lifted by two people. And in fact, it takes two people generally to turn the pages um, because otherwise you run the risk of the pages beginning to tear or rip down at the binding if you if you don't turn them in a very controlled, careful manner. The books, though, are generally, because of their size, are generally stored flat. Um, And most libraries then, as now, would generally store the books uh, flat. Um, Storing them in an upright manner puts a lot of stress on the binding, because that that sewn binding is carrying a lot of weight. So you would want to, to relieve the binding of that sort of stress. So you would store it flat.
2: So we started this series on Audubon by talking about the founding of the Audubon Society by George Bird Grinnell. Grinnell did have a connection to Audubon. He had studied with Lucy in her widowhood, but to some folks, the connection between a conservation society and a famous bird hunter might seem surprising. So it's important to remember that while Audubon noted and celebrated the seemingly endless bounty of birds in America, one of his famous journal entries, in fact, described seeing the sky black with passenger pigeons like an eclipse. He also noted later in his career how things seemed less bountiful, how robbing nests of eggs was unsustainable, and how mass shootings were happening. And some of the birds he painted are now extinct, including the passenger pigeon.
1: Yeah, and in our interview, Michael Inman suggests- That it was Audubon's passion for birds and their habitat that made him the figurehead he is in the natural world. And the PBS documentary we talked about on Audubon suggested that it was that early recognition of loss that made him a conservation figure, realizing before many people did what was really happening and how this just wasn't going to last But I can also see how Audubon's beautiful drawings served as a great example of what was worth saving and could have helped impress upon, say, the Boston Blue Bloods, who we were mentioning in the earlier episode, who weren't going to see egrets in the Everglades as live birds. It would help impress upon them that the birds themselves were really more beautiful than than their feathers and than the hats that were made from their feathers.
2: Yeah, especially since his paintings were so different than anything else that was around during his time. I mean, some of the paintings of the birds, they really do seem to have a personality, like a kind of life to them. But we had one last question of Michael Inman that we wanted to ask. Out of the 435 plates and the 189 species and the 1,065 birds depicted in Birds of America, we wanted to know which was his favorite.
3: And it's very difficult to pick out one that is my absolute favorite. Um, usually it's the, you know, I turn the page and that one I'm looking at is, you know, my my favorite. If I had to pick, though, uh, I would say plate number 26, which is the Carolina parakeet. Uh, in part um, because it is one of those birds that's now extinct and, and Audubon captured the bird in such a, a, a wonderful manner. Um, there are multiple Carolina parakeets in the image, um, six or seven at least as i recall, and they 're depicted in this vibrant green it was a bright green parakeet and it's it 's just a stunning stunning image uh, it's it 's so dynamic there 's so much action taking place in that image, and the birds are 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 moving in certain cases they're looking directly at you. Um, you really get a sense that you're wandering through a, a thicket or some or someplace, a swamp in the Carolinas and suddenly you move a tree branch and there they are just right in front of you. It's a really stunning image and it's very colorful and alive. And I think that overall um, that would be my favorite. Um, but again, it, it's hard. Some, some of my other favorite ones are for lesser known species, some of my favorite images are for um, birds that are... Um, Some of the small illustrations. The Carolina parakeet is one of those images that's a full page, Um, but some of the ones that are smaller images that are more delicate in nature, um, those are some of my favorites too because the more you look at them, the more you see, uh, you know, a spider dangling on a a web that's almost imperceptible or, um, you know, the details of the, the foliage, the flowers in the background. There's there's so much there to see, and every time you look at Audubon's work, you see something new that you've you've never noticed before. And to my mind, that's one of the great achievements and hallmarks of of Audubon's Birds of America is that you are always seeing something more um, every time you look at it.
2: So it's tough for Michael to pick his favorite bird, and it it was for us too. We actually didn't pick one, but we wanted to invite all of the listeners to email us and let us know what maybe your favorite bird in Birds of America is, and we'd like to know as well. Is it because you just like the bird, or is in it because real exactly, or because you actually appreciate the illustration and and that made you change your opinion of it for some reason or another. So write to us. We're at at HistoryPodcastDiscovery.com. We're also on Facebook and we're on Twitter at history.
1: And we do have an article on the Audubon Society, that society named for this famous illustrator. It's called How the Audubon Society Works. And you can find out a little bit more about the plume hunting, too, and some of the crazy later history of the Audubon Society. um, The plume hunters took... The mission pretty seriously. Let's just say that. Sometimes stooping to murder. So if you want to check that out, search for the Audubon Society on our website at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
0: Yeah, it's May
4: 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Rome and Florence trip with stuff you missed in history class. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the Restless Ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.